and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl. Well, I'm a screen guy. Oh, Pennsylvania. We love Pennsylvania. Last November, over 510,000 Pennsylvanians cast their votes in Montgomery County. Now, that's 82,000 more than went to the polls in 2016. Montgomery County is the third largest in Pennsylvania, and it went solidly to the Biden-Harris ticket. It's one of the wealthiest counties in our country. And as we continue our series on the Philadelphia suburbs, I know that you'll look forward to getting to know someone who has a very unique perspective on not only Montgomery County, but the entire landscape of PA politics. Our guest today is Katie Muth. She had no background in politics or government four years ago. She was an athletic trainer. She was paying off student loans. But today, she's the youngest person ever elected to the Pennsylvania State Senate. And that's a big deal. There's only 50 state senators in Harrisburg. And in 2018, she beat an incumbent who had been in office since 2003. In my opinion, she has one of the most unique and inspiring journeys into electoral politics. And over the course of 2017 and 2018, with grit and determination, she rallied over 400 volunteers to knock on upward of 110,000 doors. She has a lot to say about how five other Democrats were elected to the state Senate in 2018 and how that momentum can continue in 2022. Okay, I'm here at the Montgomery County Administration Building, where already 3,000 people have come to cast their early vote. 4,000 absentee ballots already dropped off. That's according to election officials, and it's just the beginning. Senator Katie Muth, welcome to my kitchen table. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm glad you made me a, a virtual dinner. It's uh, delicious. <laughs> well, it's the least I can do as I look back at the last four years. You had shared that you were, quote, very angry and that you were in bed for a period of time after Donald Trump won in 2016. Well, let's go back to about, you know, sort of start on a sour note, but 60 days into the Trump-Pence administration. In other words, this month, four years ago, what was going through your mind? What were you up to? I was just thinking, like, we can't live like this for the next however many years. And there has to be some sort of mechanism for citizens to intervene in the harm that government was proposing and, and causing. And so that is when I became a quote unquote activist and, and organized with some of mostly retired people in my area, but other stay at home moms, working mom, you know, families, people that were equally as outraged. And uh, we created a local indivisible group. So that was kind of where we started off um, with our rage. I like the term rage and you harnessed it for good. Um, but remind our listeners, uh, you said your area. Uh, where Whereabouts in the Commonwealth are you? So I'm outside of the, um, I'm in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So I actually have a very gerrymandered, one of the most gerrymandered Senate districts in the Commonwealth. So I have parts of three different counties. So Montgomery County, Chester County, and Berks County. Um, I live in Montgomery County and Royersford Borough. And I live like right on the Schuylkill River, which is the line for uh, the county lines for Monco and Chesco. 
So I can literally walk across the street and be in Chester County. So I have a, a very interesting suburban, a little bit of rural spots throughout my district. I have Amish people in my district. Um, I have a pretty wealthy Senate district relative to the rest of the Commonwealth. Um, but then there's also pockets of poverty as well. You grew up uh, on the opposite side of the Commonwealth in Westmoreland County. And, you know, it's just curious to me, growing up, Westmoreland County was a reliably blue county and Montgomery and Chester County were red, maybe with a hue of purple. So what do you attribute that to? You know, that's a good question. I, my, so my family, most of them still live um, in Western Pennsylvania. My brother moved to Oregon, so he doesn't, he lives in a bubble of, of liberal bubbles, but um, my dad still lives in Westmoreland County with my stepmom, my aunts and uncles that still live there. My grandmother lived there up until last year. Um, she passed away, but they were all Democrats. My mom's side of the family, some of them still live outside of Pittsburgh. They're mostly Republicans. So I came from a very mixed, you know, po- politically mixed household and, and grew up that way. So I think my family did a really good job defining patriotism because I had a lot of veterans in my family. And so when I look now, I, you know, I'll go talk to my dad. And again, he is a Democrat, but he will be the first to tell me how the Democrats have failed to acknowledge you know, some of the people living in Western Pennsylvania. And I think now, especially because his daughter's a senator, you know, my dad didn't go to college, but my dad did travel a lot for his work. So he's traveled out of the country. So I think, you know, that gives him a little bit, he's been around different types of people and, but he understands the economic strain part of this. And so I I have some of my best conversations with my dad relative to messaging and being mindful um, that I do represent Senate District 44, but my vote does count for the whole Commonwealth. And so I think it's a strength that I lived on that other side of the state, you know, for 20 some years, because I can understand where many of my colleagues are actually coming from with, you know, their, their thought processes and their arguments for things. And a lot of it's just educating the people that are in, in Pennsylvania. And it's not that they're stupid or they're not smart. It's just, there's a lot of things that happen within government that that information is just not easily accessible. And unfortunately, that's by design. And so when we talk about some of these areas that have a complete distrust for government, you know, unfortunately decided to support Donald Trump maybe, or just don't vote, right? They they don't feel like anybody is is fighting for them or represents them. And so I understand that. I, I really do think two years into this job, it's very vivid to me why people think that about government, because there's just a lot of politicking and, you know, interconnections that both sides of the aisle enable that those results in harm. And so it's really difficult for Pennsylvanians to, you you want to believe even myself, I always thought government did X, Y, and Z because they're supposed to protect the people. And, and that's what tax dollars should be, you know, spent towards, right, is protecting people, giving them opportunities in an equitable manner. And, and we know that's not true. And unfortunately, here in Pennsylvania, it's very much a corporate state where, industry has taken the priority of our government instead of the people that it's supposed to serve. And so for me, I'm, I often find myself out of my district talking to people about issues that impact my district. You know, this not in my backyard thing is sometimes the conversation. But I think when you explain to people that like, yes, it may not be in your backyard right now, so you might not be worried about it, is that it can happen to you just as much as it could happen to anyone else because there's no protections. And so I think talking to people about how the process works or doesn't work is just a really important component. And um, I think because I've lived on in both, and I've also went to, to Penn State, so I've lived in the middle of the state. So I can sort of relate to the different areas and, and some of the, the local struggles and challenges they're facing. 
Wow, a lot, a lot to unpackage there. Let's definitely uh, plunge into that. But first things first, let's go back to uh, the dreadful first hundred days of the Trump-Pence administration. So uh, you're using terms like anger and rage and darkness, and you know you're referring that you're now a state senator and you're one of only fifty there in Harrisburg. So a lot has happened, uh, and you're also several hundred miles away. So how did you get from Westmoreland County to Montgomery County, and then before you knew it? hidden doors uh, um, in Montgomery County? So I went to Clarion University for a year after I graduated from um, high school. And then my aunt, my grandma got sick uh, with cancer, one with cancer, my aunt took care of my grandma. So I was out of school. And I lived with them. Um, They both passed away within about a year and some months of one another. So I was living in my grandma's house with my aunt's dog. And I'm like, what do I do now? I, I, sh- I should go back to school. And so I changed my major. I went back to school, but I went to Penn State and I wanted to be an athletic trainer because it still had something to do with, you know, taking care of people, but just better outcomes when I originally thought I wanted to be like a physician's assistant or something. And so after being in every cancer care entity in, in the city of Pittsburgh, I, I wanted to, you know, work with different prognosis. God bless everyone who who does that. It's just emotionally draining. And so the Pittsburgh Steelers had the only female athletic trainer in the NFL at the time. Um, I think they might still be, but, and I'm like, well, this, why, why is this one person, the only person? And so I went to Penn state, long story short, I was the first female from Penn state to ever go to the NFL for an internship. And that was sort of my first entry other than listening to my aunt who had passed away from cancer, but she had worked in you know, the IT world where at that time it was very male dominated and just listening to the horror stories from where she worked. And so this was my first gendered, you know, um, situation where I really saw how how great the divide was. And so I was lucky that that I uh, was able to study a lot. I did nothing at Penn State but study anatomy. So because it's a competitive process to get an internship, but I went to do a grad assistantship in Arizona. And I worked uh, Penn State sports camps the summer after I graduated. And I was like an older student by a couple of years than, than my peers. So I was considered an adult student, an adult learner. And I literally flew to Arizona with a backpack, a duffel bag, a suitcase and a dog, which was my aunt's dog, put them underneath my seat and moved in with two people I did not know. <laughs> one was from Japan <laughs> and one was from Texas. And so I went to grad school and I, I was uh, a grad assistant with Arizona State football. And again, the only female. And so um, luckily I met my husband while I was there. He's from Florida, but he was there as a grad assistant from the year before me. But, um, and then we both, we worked together while I finished my thesis at a low income high school in Tempe, Arizona, where it was like the melting pot of all students from all sorts of countries all over the world. And they all got along. And it was like, looking back, probably one of the most wonderful places I've worked because those kids just taught me a lot about um, tolerance and acceptance and, and how things but also suck because none of them had health insurance. A lot of them relied on the emergency insurance from, you know, the school and when they play football and had concussions and we had to buy kids shoes they're, you know, they didn't grow toenails and couldn't get new basketball shoes. And just a lot of different things that I look back that I think built me up to be where I am today and sort of the challenges I, I used to negotiate for knee braces because they weren't covered by insurance. Whereas, uh, you know, with the Steelers or Arizona State, a lot of money involved. So you could find anything you needed to have an MRI the next day or or whatever. And so very different. So then we started applying for jobs and my husband applied, we applied everywhere for just, you know, any job that we could get as an athletic trainer, 
mostly over the country, but we wanted to move back towards this side of the the country to be near our family. And he actually got an interview at Villanova. And so we drove across the country and moved into the place we live now without actually visiting. And it was the place we could afford to live closest to Villanova. So that's why we're 35 minutes away (laughs) because the main line's very expensive and I have a lot of student loan debt. So we live here with our two dogs. And then I worked at Villanova for a little bit with women's basketball. Um, And then while someone was on maternity leave, and then I went to work at Eastern University, which is where I worked until I became a senator. And I taught anatomy and I worked with the sports teams there. And I made $37,500 a year with the master's degree and a shit ton of student loan debt. And I, you know, every single kid that I worked with, whether it was in the classroom or, or, you know, if they got hurt or whatever, they were a blessing to teach me you know, how to fight for these things and not, you know, give up. And that was really the, the crux of also realizing the healthcare system is so for profit and how these entities pay or donate to elected officials. And we wonder why the policies won't change. So between being a rape survivor and a rapist being elected president, the pay to play system that I started to really better understand those two combined, I, you know, my rage just fueled me. Uh, and it was then realizing like who represents me at the state level in Pennsylvania was, you know, we're one of the lowest ranking states for women in government. I didn't know who my state senator was because why would he send me anything? I'm a Democrat. And so, you know, it sort of just opened up my eyes to like why things are the way they are and why we need quote unquote, just regular people in government. Senator, that is one of the most unique and you know, I, I would say inspiring. Weird stories. Uh, no, 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 no. You, you. Uh, I'm going to say inspiring, and I think our listeners would would, would think as much. Uh, journeys into electoral politics. Uh, I mean, you saw the intense competition on the court, on the field, and uh, you know, how does that compare to then 2017, 2018? You're sizing up, taking on someone. If I'm doing my math correctly, who was in electoral politics since before you could vote. And you're in a district which is purple-ish. I think folks generally consider the Philadelphia suburbs as just some sort of blue uh, blob. But when we go down ballot, that's not true. So how did all that competition prepare you as you say, I'm going to channel this rage. I'm going I'm to do something about it. I think the one thing I'm grateful that I went into the profession I did, and my husband and I talk about this all the time, is that like in athletic training, even if you made peanuts, like you can't turn your phone off. There's a kid or somebody texting you that, you know, they fell on the stairs or they cut their Achilles heel on like a broken shower door, like just crazy things that you're like, okay, like I better make sure, you know, someone's at the hospital with them or, or whatever, or that you're traveling with teams. And there's just, you know, there's just so much hard work that goes into it and you really have to be on high alert. And so because we've never really worked like a 40 hour work week ever. I think that's part of why like we kind of operate in adrenaline mode. And then there's the off season, right? Where you're healing and, and planning and protect, you know, working on things for the next year. So when I decided to run for Senate, to be very honest, I had no idea what exactly that entailed. And it was more like, you should run for Senate. No Democrat has ever helped, not even understanding like, the battle I initially like decided to engage in like the depth of it. I don't know that anybody could, you know, initially becoming a candidate, but no one thought I could win. Not a soul, maybe like three people. One of them was probably my dad and the other one was my husband. And so I got a lot of unsolicited advice from a lot of people that never ran for office who are in local politics. 
and never really bothered to engage with my husband and I for the first three years we lived here. We had no idea what the local Democratic Party was. There were vacancies for committee people where we lived. And like we never until 2016, where we helped out on the Hillary campaign, just becoming active in our own, you know, signing up in an email like we didn't know what the local party did or or who was a part of it. And so, you know, when you come, when you think about running for office, it's like you want the party support. Of course, I didn't really battle that initially because just no one thought I could win. So it was kind of just like, oh, good luck to her. That's nice. She's trying or you know, someone would just kind of brush me off. But so we just put in the work. I credit the Progressive Change Campaign Committee um, because if I had not gone to their training in 2017 in the summer, I would have quit being a I would have never ran for Senate because it was so overwhelmed with all this unsolicited advice. I'm, I'm sorry, was, it, was that in was that in Pennsylvania or was that a national training they did in Washington? It was in D.C. And so it was right when they were trying to overturn the care, you know, Obamacare. And so we had like Jamie Raskin, who just got elected, Elizabeth Warren, people coming in off the floor to like talk to us that were scheduled to speak. But like because the vote time got all it was if you remember, it was like super dramatic, like trying to like defend, you know, Obamacare. And so speaking of Arizona, that was the famous Senator McCain thumbs down. So like, again, very intense, right? But they taught the importance of not just a million dollar campaign, but, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, you, you hit the, you, you, no matter what, hit the doors, talk to people. You can't win elections on TV. There were seats flipped in red districts in Arizona and Michigan, Wisconsin, that where the candidate just hit the field. It was, you were out in the field, you just grinded. Um, If you ran out of money, didn't matter. And so it took me about six months to raise like $42,000. Again, I just told you where I grew up. I have no real family wealth. I have student loan debts. It took me a while to fundraise. And so that was just, you know, by mostly small dollar donors. And if I had to work, because I worked full time throughout my whole campaign until August of 2018. And then my polling came back. It showed I shot had a shot in hell. So we had saved for me to like, you know, be off work for a few months on a very limited budget. But before that, my husband was doing call time while I was covering basketball practice at Eastern in the evening. So he would get like $25 from a donor and we'd be like, Woo, this is so great. So we were, you know, we were a little engine that could, but I think, you know, looking at that is the the PCCC training, you know, really talked about listening to people, um, having those conversations one-on-one, layering messaging, you know, being your unique self, which is often not you know, that's not encouraged necessarily by the democratic machine because everybody wants you in the cookie cutter. And, you know, I think for me, it set the tone for who I am now, not just when I was a candidate, but also there's no candidate Katie and like Senator Katie, like it's the same thing. And there's no slogan, there's no bullshit. It's just, we're gonna have tough conversations. Let's talk about the issues. Let's like hash this out. Um, Let's talk about all the moving pieces, even if it means you know, talking about weaknesses of my own party. And because at the end of the day, I don't represent the Democratic Party, I represent the people of Pennsylvania. And so I've been given this incredible and also sometimes horrific opportunity <laughs> to, to impact people's lives. And some days you're just like, this is why you're here is because you didn't fit that mold. And and I think that's just really important. And don't get me wrong, there's some people that have been in the game longer than me elected for a while who embrace the new energy, like myself and others that were elected recently in Pennsylvania. 
and they have that institutional knowledge that is invaluable, but then they also are open-minded enough, you know, to be a part of, of the movement. And it's just, you know, Democrats have not had the majority in Pennsylvania and the state legislature for over 20 some years. So me being who I am, I, we just, we just work hard. There's no quitting. And the truth is the truth. And until it's out there, you can't have good policy without it being based on facts and evidence. And that's how we rolled. That's how we rolled at the doors, talking to people about tax fairness in my purple district, tell people in a $500,000 house with high property taxes and four kids, and they're worried about college tuition, that corporations in Pennsylvania, 75% of them don't pay their fair share in taxes, and you will have a common bond, even if they're not a Democrat. And so fairness is something that resonates with every person. And so we just talked about these, you know, really on purpose inequities um, that exist in Pennsylvania and how it doesn't have to be that way. Amazing. I, I got to ask you two questions, one quick and one probably more philosophical. The first is, how did you link up, if you were completely apolitical, how did you link up in the summer of 2017 with the PCCC, as you called it, uh, the Progressive Change uh, Committee? I think we have a lot of listeners in Washington, D.C. who might be familiar with their work and uh, intrigued about how someone like you and the heart of suburban Philadelphia just finds them and gets invited down to Washington. I think because I listened to Elizabeth Warren, it was one of the, you know, I don't even call her a politician, one of the wonderful people in government that spoke in a way that like it spoke to me and it was it was wasn't sugar-coated it wasn't you know polished crap that meant nothing it was meaningful and it was truth and um anybody that was speaking truth at that time from the time trump was elected till you know the entire time i ran from office till this moment in time i'm grateful for because the political pressures within um are often so great that it stifles it or you you see people that you know are good people you know become cowardly and so she was just a fighter and so she was part of the p triple c Bernie Sanders, same way, he spoke truth. You know, he wasn't some polished guy. You know, he he was he was telling the truth um, about really important issues and and had plans plans that were backed up by facts and data and information on how to make things better for people. And so, you know, that's as simple as the answer to get is just that those two. I got an email invite last minute, and I actually met people that um, were run office in the suburbs of PA that I never met before, but met them in Washington, DC, because they the Pennsylvania people, you know, the same two tables or whatever. So um, Representative Melissa Schusterman was there, the Chester County controller, Margaret Reif, she was there. <laughs> so we just had this really cool, like, oh, you live right here, <laughs> um, Bond. And so, you know, we were just trying to find our way. And like I said, had I not gone to that, I would have, I would have not ran for Senate because I just, I would have thought it was impossible. So you were redefining what's possible in Pennsylvania politics. So thank you. And I, I can't speak for our listeners, but I think they would say thank you as well. Here's the more philosophical question. And before it, you've mentioned the word truth a few times. I'm reminded of the line from the Old Testament, which is etched into the foyer of the CIA. You're like, where the hell is this going? You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So here's the more philosophical question. Electability. In odd number of years like this, I find that there's all sorts of conversations around kitchen tables and boardroom tables and democratic circles about electability. And I think that we're already hearing this with an eye to the 2022 Senate campaign. We don't need to go there. But you were hearing that. You were hearing a lot about electability, uh, and you alluded to that uh, in that summer of 2017. So with 2020 hindsight, and as we look to hopefully uh, growing the state Senate majority, I'm sorry, 
trying to get into the majority, but growing the caucus in 2022. What does electability mean? I mean, I think the cookie cutter version of electability is, is how you always fit into the proposed, the perceived mold of success as, as a candidate. So I think that's fundraising ability, these basic metrics that have maybe given, you know, the his- historical route to candidacy, then to elected office. It's, it's, you know, label of success. But I think electability means that to me is that people are going to go out and vote for you. And so that's a really, that's a detailed thing. It's going to be different, right? People are, are vote for an individual based on different reasons. And so you have to be yourself. You have to be authentic. Um, you have to own that. I think one of the hardest things, it's so cheesy. And like every person that's like, think about all the posters in the local library that you like, it's like, be yourself. And like, and like when you're growing up and it's like, that's the bit. And it's like, oh, it can't be so simple. And the entire time I ran for office with all the people telling you what to do, what to say, the only times that I felt like we had to, you know, recalculate and get back on the trail, what on the right path forward was when I didn't trust my gut. And when I, and I felt like I was feeding into the advice of others about change the way you say this or do that. Like you want to listen to everyone's feedback, but you know, you don't need to listen to people that are criticizing you that would, you would never ask for their advice anyway. And so, cause it's just not worth you. So your electability can change and you could end up losing if, if you don't remember, you know, the best version of you is one that you're able to get your message out, practice that, right? Like I, I, I still do that. Like, am I saying what is resonating? Is this too wonky? Is, is this whatever? But electability is, can you get people to come out and vote for you and why? And so, yeah, there's going to be those voters that just vote for whatever person's the D and but I think what we're seeing now is that these aren't, you know, it's an election of turnout a lot of the time. And now we have early voting in Pennsylvania. And so like, you really have to be out in front of your message. And so but not just say it, you got to be it, right? Like I can't sit here and say, I believe in, you know, clean water and that everyone has a right to clean water in Pennsylvania and then go vote for some bullshit bill that like literally allows polluting of people's water. That's crap, right? Like that's called being a liar. So you really have to be careful of the decisions you make as an elected um, in the minority. We don't control anything on the legislative calendar, but that doesn't mean I don't, I just sit back and put my feet up. No, we try to amend every bill to make it better, even if it gets voted down, which it has every single time, except for three times that my amendments passed, which was by the grace of God and sheer luck. But like you have to, electability means that people are going to, they know what I voted for and why. And I can make a case for every damn vote I've taken, but not every elected reads everything. Not everybody's invested like that. And so there are people in my district that didn't vote for me in 2018 that are now, thank you so much for bringing this information forward. Thank you, like, just for being honest about this. Like, you have my vote. And being honest isn't easy, but electability means that I'm able to say, hey, there's dozens of dead veterans in my district from COVID-19 and hydroxychloroquine. And who's going to take answer for that? And yeah, I'm calling out my own governor, you know, and I'm, I'm asking anybody who had any oversight over it because it's unacceptable. And so that's electability is, is fighting for the people. And so you got to have the courage to do that because it's not going to always be encouraged by the political machine that you're affiliated with. You've been super generous with your time. I'm not going to hold you much longer, Senator, but thanks again for coming by my kitchen table. My understanding to use an Obama phrase, you were fired up, ready to go. The PCCC uh, training got into your DNA you and uh, a team you recruited of 400 volunteers went to town on 110,000 doors, and uh, you knocked off a sitting state senator who had been in since uh, you were in high school. I'm curious about 
Montgomery County had 80,000 additional voters come out uh, in total. It was incredible. The Biden-Harris ticket won 63 percent. It's the third largest county. I mean, that's a huge insurmountable bump when you get 80,000. What is it going to take to do that all over again in 2022? How do we keep those 400 volunteers you recruited? And how do we keep those 80,000 new out-of-nowhere voters enthused, for want of a better term? I think there's a strategy that you have to sort of look at um, with volunteers and with voters is fatigue, right? There's emotional fatigue, there's COVID fatigue, there's a lot that's happened in the last year that um, has changed the way you message to your constituency and even changed the way people have had to run for office. And so I think the silver lining of this horrible year we've lived through and, and those that didn't live through it have you know, left a scar on my heart knowing that what this virus did was expose the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses and the really just injustices that have existed for how long and how people suffered even more so because of them and then later in a pandemic. And so while everybody's exhausted and I get that exhaustion is that I'm still so outraged that even though I'm tired that like, where do you go from here? And like going back to normal isn't okay because normal didn't work for a lot of people before. And so I think that COVID has made people pay attention to local government, state government, and federal government a little bit more than they ever would have because of stimulus checks, needs, you know, help with getting signed up for vaccines, getting um, your unemployment, which is still backlogged to this day. And just an array of government programming that many of which has been underfunded, certainly at the state level. And so those deficits show there. And so people know that I can't magically get your check deposited for unemployment. We're pretty good at it. My office, my team is great, but it doesn't always happen overnight when you're trying to help someone. But to explain to them that, hey, this this agency and many other the departments haven't had an IT upgrade in 10 years. And so here we are, you know, like, yes, I agree with you. Someone could probably manage vaccine rollout right now better on a freaking Google Doc run by five organized Girl Scout troop leaders but here we are, right? Like, so I think it took a village to get me elected in 2018. And and that was all hands on deck, out of district, you know, out of state. Um, I had small dollar donors from 50 states. Um, I take no, I take no special interest money, zero. I'm the only person in the state Senate that can say that. It's a huge, you know, leverage point for me, but it also makes me public enemy number one. So I am no friend uh, of many most Republicans would love nothing more than for me to disappear from this earth. And there may be a handful of Democrats that would agree with that. So I certainly have, um, I'm preparing for war and I feel like we've been in war and, you know, you might not win the battle every day, but people's lives are on the line. So I, I hope that the electorate realizes now more than ever that government could and has the the ability to function as it should to help and protect people And that it's only if all of us are outraged and demanding that it change for the better that we all succeed. Um, And so I think when we talk about thriving versus surviving, like, you know, layering your level of privilege here, like getting mad that you can't go and do the things you always did versus like forced to be on the front lines, unvaccinated to this moment, grocery store workers, whomever that we all thanked. I think that there's hopefully a level of empathy that came out of this. and that we are headed into this next election cycle. Courts matter. This election 2021 matters, you know, and and getting people to understand that courts upholding certain decisions or overturning certain decisions are really important. And so 
I think that's where to keep the momentum going is that we just got to keep pointing out the truths of what still have yet to be corrected by those who have the power to do so. And, and that's, you know, it's been Senator Katie and it'll be candidate candidate uh, incumbent Senator Katie as, as we head into 2022. <laughs> well, Senator incumbent Katie, let's end on a high note. Looking back at 26 uh, months that, that changed your life and certainly changed Harrisburg, uh, what was the best day? What was the highlight? That's a hard one. I will say this. I don't know that there's a single best day, but I think the best days have been where every day on this job, I learned something, whether it's horrifying or, you know, reinvents my faith in, in humanity. But I will say that every uh, person who's reached out or that we've come into contact with that we could help in any capacity, the days where even the little things matter and and being able to lift people up and um, make them feel heard. And, and so I think one of my favorite moments, I don't know if it was the best day because the day started really crappy at a crappy hearing and, and like Williamsport. And then I had to drive to this uh, SEI Dallas in the middle of nowhere. And because a former juvenile lifer invited me to a legislative event, I was late, but I thought there'd be other legislators there. And I was the only one who showed up. And it looked like a concentration camp, it looked like Auschwitz driving up to it was snowy. It was December. It was so, it was just sad. And so I got there and I walked into the cafeteria place and they made me wear a panic button through security, which was weird because I never had to do that when I've gone to meet with other former lifers. And so, or lifers, because they're, you know, I've gone to other state facilities, but I walked in and it's a whole cafeteria full of inmates. And um, Bobby, who was the former juvenile lifer that, you know, introduced me, came to my office in Royersford from Philly to tell me his story and how, you know, he overcame all of these challenges, invited me. And he's up on the stage doing this speech and he's like, and here's Senator Katie, she's going to talk to you. And I had, I thought it was like 16 people, like I normally meet with in a room. And so I just stood up there and told him how I got to be where I was today. And, you know, that if I could give them a, like an inkling of hope is that there's people fighting for them to have second chances and that, you know, someone like me wasn't supposed to be a Senator and, and to remind yourself that, the struggle isn't fair, but it's that there's people like me and, and others that are trying to to lessen that struggle and and, and ensure that kind of um, justice at some point. And so for me to look out and just look at people that, you know, certainly I could, can't begin to relate, but at least gave me the opportunity, you know, to speak to them and and then also to listen to them afterwards as I as I went around and, and talked with all of them. So for me, it's just... Um, or going up to other you know places in my district where people don't even know who I am or that they never even voted for a state senator and you know their water is damaged by you know Sunoco or whatever and, and just to show up at their house on a weekend whatever you know and say how can I help what can I do I might not be able to fix it but I every day that I've done this job you know there's something I've learned and that I'm grateful for and the best moments are the ones where me my team that works their tails off 24/7 learning legislative processes and, and whatever, trying to navigate like just absolute efforts to destroy humanity on a session day by Republicans or the majority party. And then see some of your own Democrats go that way. Like we have a good team and, you know, holding hope up and, you know, we're, we're changing the system one day at a time. It's just one day at a time. <laughs> so that's my long winded answer. <laughs> no, that is, that is a great positive message to end on. So Senator, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. Next time you can come over to my kitchen table. <laughs> All right. 
Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. As Hillary Clinton used to say, it takes a village. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Sarah McGrath and Jake Schwartz. If you liked this discussion, we would love for you to give us a review, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a suggestion on a future guest and other feedback, visit our website, papoliticspodcast.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at PA Political Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.